The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. This morning we're going to be looking at the seventh feast of Yahweh, which is called the Feast of Booths. Now, we've done a lot of teaching on the feasts over the years, and I remember when I first did this teaching, I thought it would be a two, two-week two messages, and it ended up being, I don't know, seven, eight, nine weeks long. So there's a series on there, <coughs> and we've done the Feast of Booth, so this is a supplement to that. In addition to that, if you want the complete picture, go and listen to that one also, but One thing about the feasts, I really believe that the feasts give a foundation and a strength to the eschatological view of preterism. I think if you understand the feast, you're going to understand the preterist view of eschatology. I think they're just really connected. All right, well, let's start with just kind of a quick overview of the feasts of Yahweh. The seven feasts were appointed times of worship that God had given to Israel, and these Times of worship would serve as dress rehearsals. Dress rehearsals of prophetic events that were to happen in the future. So through these feasts, Yahweh was showing and teaching Israel what He was going to do in the future. They were pictures of their coming Messiah and His work. They were all about Messiah. So these feasts were both literal feasts, celebrated in Israel every year, and they were types on God's prophetic calendar of events for the church. These feasts are a study in typology. Now, what exactly do we mean by a type? Well, Wick Brumall has a concise statement, I think, that is helpful. He says, a type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment, or anti-type, is found in the New Testament revelation. So we have type, and then the anti-type is the fulfillment of that type. And when you study the Feast of Yahweh, you will see that there are seven of them, and they are listed in chronological order in Leviticus chapter 23. There are four spring feasts. Charity, put me full screen, will you? I can't fit these graphics in the screen that we show, so we'll go full screen. These seven feasts start out with Passover. I think you're familiar with Passover. Uh, It's such a typological institution. On the 14th of the Hebrew month of Nisan, the children of Israel sacrificed the Passover lamb. Then, uh, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the 15th, the next day, they left Egypt. Then there was the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Firstfruits doesn't have a date because it always falls on Sunday the first Sunday after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then 50 days after that feast, we have Pentecost. On Pentecost, Israel reached Sinai and God gave them the law on Pentecost. All right. Now these feasts show us the first coming of Christ. Because if you go fast forward from these feasts, 1600 years, you see that on Passover the Lord was crucified. Then on Unleavened Bread... It, it pictures a release from captivity. Then first fruits is the resurrection of Christ. And then 50 days after first fruits on Pentecost, the law was given to the church, the new covenant. 
So we have type. We have anti-type. Then we have 40 years. Now, in the, in the year of the feast, there was a four-month dry period where there was no feast, there was no special days for Israel. It was the dry season, so they went for four months. This pictured the 40-year Exodus journey. This four-month gap. So, here's what we have to understand. This is, where, this is what's important. The Feast of Yahweh actually convey two 40-year Exodus periods. We're all familiar with the first Exodus. 40-year period they went through. That's the type. The anti-type is the 40 years from Christ coming on the scene and these feasts being fulfilled until the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later. The first Exodus period concerns Israel's removal from the bondage of Egypt at Passover. They went on a physical journey through a physical wilderness to a physical promised land. But more significantly is the anti-type, the spiritual Exodus. This Exodus runs from the cross to AD 70. In this Exodus, Israel, after the Spirit, left its bondage of the law and sin and death, and began a 40-year spiritual journey to a spiritual inheritance, the kingdom of God, or the new heavens and new earth. Now, the remaining three feasts are the fall feasts, which were a prophetic foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ. And what most people do is they recognize, okay, these four feasts happened in the spring, and then they just stopped, and and the rest will happen sometime in the future. So it's been over 2,000 years. A 2,000-year gap, and they're still waiting for these fall feasts. But it wasn't 2,000 years. It was 40 years. And at the end of the 40 years, we had the Feast of Trumpets, and Jerusalem was destroyed. Then we had the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Booths. And these fall feasts took place in the month of Tishri on the Hebrew calendar, which would be September or October to our calendar. These three feasts speak of the consummation of redemption after the outpouring of God's wrath and the coming of the new heavens and new earth, which is typified by the Feast of Booths. These feasts picture the second coming of Christ. Now, just like in the first Exodus, it was 40 years and they entered the promised land. It's the same in the anti-type, the second Exodus. It was 40 years and they entered, we entered, the church entered the promised land of the new heavens and new earth. Today we want to focus on the seventh and the final feast, which is the Feast of Booths. There's three portions of Scripture that outline the biblical observance of this Feast of Booths. One of them tells us the people were to live in booths. Guess that's how it got its name, right? And they were to rejoice before Yahweh with branches. That's Leviticus 23. There were to be many daily sacrificial offerings, according to Numbers 29. And in a sabbatical year, the law was to be publicly read during booths, according to Deuteronomy 31. All right, Charity, you can put me back to regular slide now. Look at Leviticus 23, 33, and 34. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to Yahweh. All right, now, I want you to get the numerology here, all right? This is the seventh feast. It happens on the seventh month, 
and it's to last for seven days. The number seven is the biblical number of completion or perfection. So this is the grand finale in God's plan of redemption. Now people, it's important that we understand that this is the grand finale. People look at the cross like, oh, that was the grand finale. No, it was 40 years after the cross when the grand finale came, when the plan of redemption was complete, when Yahweh began to dwell with His people. Now the Feast of Booths is the most joyful and festival of all the feasts. That's one thing you hear over. You're there to rejoice. There was just such great times of rejoicing and celebration. It was the most important. It was the most prominent of the feasts. It is mentioned more in Scripture than any of the other feasts. The Feast of Booths is known by at least two names in Scripture. Most often is referred to as Sukkot or Booths or Tabernacles. Now, the feast is frequently translated as the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's somewhat misleading because the word tabernacle in the Bible refers to the portable sanctuary in the desert. In the Bible, that refers to that dwelling place of God that they moved as they went through the desert. Uh, The Hebrew word is mishkan that's used for the tabernacle. The Hebrew word sukkah, or plural sukkot, refers to the temporary booths the people lived in and not the tabernacle. Now this feast was to be an annual reminder of God's provision during that 40-year wilderness journey when Israel lived in these similar shelters. The final feast of the year is known in Scripture also as the Feast of Ingathering, for it was observed after all the crops had been harvested and gathered in. We see that in Exodus 23.16. You shall keep the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So again, this feast was celebrated with great joy, and the joy was twofold. It commemorated God's past goodness and providing for them during this wilderness journey. you got to think about the wilderness journey and what they went through and how they were totally dependent upon God to protect them, to feed them, to care for them. I mean, they're in a desert for 40 years. So it commemorated that. They remembered that. And it also commemorated God's present goodness and provision for them with the completion of the harvest. Again, the mood of Sukkot is joyous. It's a time of celebration. You see a progression in these fall feasts. You have repentance on the Feast of Trumpets. Then you have forgiveness on Atonement, Day of Atonement. And now it's time to rejoice and be glad at Sukkot. Look at Deuteronomy 16, 14, and 15. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to Yahweh your God at the place that Yahweh will choose. Because Yahweh your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So, again, they're told to rejoice. Now, I want you to notice here that everyone, including the sojourner, those are Gentiles, were commanded to rejoice during Sukkot. 
The word sojourner here is gar, which means a foreigner, an alien, a sojourner, a stranger. This is a non-Israelite. This is a goy worshiping Yahweh like a native because he has attached himself to Israel and he is worshiping Yahweh. So what we would call Gentiles or non-Israelites, they could worship Yahweh through Israel. Now the Feast of Booths is also called Hag Hagoyim by the Israelites. And what that means is the Feast of the Nations. Now I think that's kind of interesting, all right? We said these are the Feasts of Yahweh, but the Israelites, this is not a scriptural thing, but the Israelites called this feast Hag Hagoyim, the Feast of the Nations. And this is very important. Because here we see that the Feast of Booths was not just for the Israelites. It was for all nations. During Sukkot, the foreigner is given a special blessing. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel. Okay, do you understand who a foreigner is now? He's a non-Israelite. I think that's pretty clear, right? They come from a far country for your name's sake, for, their, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls on you. Again, this is a foreigner. This is a non-Israelite. It says, in order that all the people of the earth, Again, we're talking beyond Israel. All the people may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. Again, he's separating them. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now this, in in 1 Kings here 8, this is King Solomon. He's dedicating the temple after it was finished being built. And he does it on Sukkot. All right, the Feast of Booths. Again, you have the people, all the people of the earth, and the people of Israel, the separation there. When you look at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah taught that all nations are going to come up to Jerusalem in a pilgrimage to celebrate Sukkot. Now, because of the joy associated with the Feast of Booths, it became the most prominent of Israel's holidays. It was referred to simply as the holiday by the rabbis. Now, they had seven of them, but they just called it the holiday, and everyone knew what it was because it was the prominent one. And the importance of the Feast of Booths is also seen in its inclusion as one of the three pilgrim feasts. Of these seven feasts, three of them are called pilgrim feasts, which mean no matter where you live, you had to go to Jerusalem at the time of the feast to worship Yahweh. They were Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. You packed up, you went to Jerusalem, you celebrated this feast. All males were required to do that. Every year. Further importance is seen in the feast in the great number of sacrifices that were required during this feast. I mean, it's got, well, let's look at them, okay? Numbers 29. On the 15th day of the seventh month, all right, that's the, we learn from other texts, we we learn from Leviticus, the 15th day, this is the, of Tishri, this is the day that you celebrate the Feast of Booths. So we know they're talking about the Feast of Booths. You shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to Yahweh seven days. It's a seven-day feast, so we know what we're talking about. And you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering, and a pleasant aroma to Yahweh. 
13 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old, they shall be without blemish. Now, okay, I'm not going to read the rest, but this text goes on for 27 more verses just to list the sacrifices. Okay, so you get the picture there. Here's what's interesting about the bulls. He says 13 bulls. Well, that's the first day. The second day, 12. The third day, 11. Then 10, 9, 8, 7. So how many bulls were sacrificed? Anybody know? Anybody a mathematician? Huh? 70 bulls were sacrificed. Does 70 ring a bell? 70 mean anything? 70 bulls. What's the significance of 70? Okay. Why, why was Israel to offer 70 bulls during this feast? See, that's a biblical number, and that number should you know, spark some things in your head. In Tractate Sukkah 55b, Rabbi Eliezer stated, To what do those 70 bullocks correspond? And his answer was, To the 70 nations. Now, hopefully that rings a bell. The 70 nations mentioned in Genesis. And we'll talk about those 70 nations in a minute, but we're going to come back there, so hang on a minute. One amazing thing about this seventh feast of Sukkot is the sacrifices that are offered during this seven days. When the offerings are grouped or counted, their number always remains divisible by seven. There's 182 sacrifices. There's 70 bullocks, there's 14 rams, 98 lambs, a total of 182, which just happens to be divisible by seven. The meal offerings total 336 tenths of ephahs of flour, which again is divisible by seven. By no coincidence, this seven-day holiday, which takes place at the height of the seventh month, lasts for seven days, is the seventh feast, has the perfect number of seven imprinted on its sacrifices. Everything about this feast says completion, perfection, finality. Now, it's interesting to read the different people and what they say about this 70 bulls, you know, because you read that and people know, okay, bang, it catches in their mind. If you're familiar with the scriptures that are oh, the 70 is an important number uh, that does refer to the nations, that does refer to the 70 gods, the sons of El. So this, you know, you brings up some things. And so you start thinking about it, you start looking into it. Well, this lady, Dr. Noga Darshan, she published a journal article a peer-reviewed article in 2015 called, here's the title of the article, The 70 Bulls Sacrificed at Sukkot, Numbers 29, 12 through 34, in light of the ritual text from Imar. That's quite a title, okay? But what she does is she connects these 70 bulls to the 70 nations, which I think that's right, and she also connects it to the 70 gods over those nations. And I'm like, you're tracking. I, I got, I'm with you there too. But here's where she goes way off course, all right? She thinks that the Israelites actually offered 70 bulls as sacrifices to these other gods. So, so basically then, you could say that in numbers, and from her opinion, Yahweh is saying, hey, offer some 
sacrifices to these other gods. I, I'm getting all the attention. I mean, I, I don't want you to leave out these other gods. Offer some sacrifice to them. That's ridiculous, okay? That is crazy. It makes no sense at all. Israel was commanded not to worship other gods. And speaking of judgment that was to come upon disobedient Israel, Moses said this, All the nations will say, Why has Yahweh done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went up and served other gods and worshipped them. God is angry because Israel is serving other gods. It says gods whom they had not known and whom had not been allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in the book. Now, what I want you to notice here, God's angry because they're worshiping gods, he says, that are not allotted to them. What does that mean? Well, Deuteronomy 4.19, God chastens Israel because, again, they're worshiping these gods, he says, who are allotted to the nations. In other words, those gods, those lesser gods, those foreign gods, were given over to the nations to worship, not for Israel. Yahweh is Israel's God. All right? So they're not allotted to the nations. So I can't see these 70 bulls being offered to other gods. That's just crazy. That would be idolatry. All right? Now, Michael Heiser sees Sukkot as picturing deliverance. And he says, Sukkot which celebrates the deliverance from this place. By this place, he means the wilderness. All right? And and people, there's so much we have to grasp about the wilderness that I don't think people understand. Okay, it's much more than just a desert place. It is filled with demons. It is filled with evil gods. You know, that was, this is not God's dwelling place. Okay? And so this is under foreign gods. He goes, from these entities, from these supernatural forces that want death and destruction and chaos for Israel. That's what Sukkot is about. So he sees it as they're celebrating deliverance from the wilderness. And I agree with that. All right? But I think there's more to it than that. Now, Milgram, in his commentary on the book of Numbers, says this. You find that on Sukkot, Israel offers to him, God, 70 bulls as an atonement for the 70 nations. Now, I think he's on to something there because that that makes sense to me. I see the Feast of Booths as being a reminder to Israel of her mission to the nations of the world. This is the reason 70 bulls were sacrificed during this feast. One bull for each of the 70 nations, which originally comprised the nations of the world before the Tower of Babel, when Yahweh turned these nations over to the lesser gods and called Israel to be His people. But I also see it, as Heiser does, as a picture of deliverance. God did deliver them, and He also delivered the church from the wilderness. It pictures deliverance. But they sacrificed these 70 bulls for the deliverance of the nations, because I think they were also saying, we are delivered through this feast. God took us through the wilderness, but they're also, we are responsible to bring the gospel to the nations that they might be delivered. They were called to be a light. We see this in Isaiah 49, 6. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob 
and bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel was called to carry the gospel to the nations. Now, let's pause here a moment and let me back up a little bit and let me review a little bit of the divine counsel viewpoint so you're, hopefully we're all on the same page here. So we can understand who these nations were and what Israel's calling was. Uh, we all know, I think most of you are familiar with Genesis. You know, God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, tells them, you can eat anything in this place you want except one fruit. Guess what they wanted to do? Eat that one forbidden fruit, okay? And so they, they sinned. They violated God's command. They sinned. That's Genesis 3. Well, then you get to Genesis 6. All right, Adam messed up. Well, now in Genesis 6, you got God's leaving heaven to come down and cohabitate with women and have offspring with these women who are hybrid beings, supernatural hybrid beings. So, so man begins to worship these watchers instead of the watcher's creator. And so from the beginning of Genesis, you get into just a few chapters and the whole world's going crazy. They just won't listen to Yahweh, no matter what he does. And this rebellion culminates in the building of a ziggurat at Babel, Genesis 11, 8 and 9. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So things are in a state of chaos. Man is not listening to God. They're not worshiping God. They're in rebellion against God. And so God finally says, I've had enough. And He judges them. They wouldn't follow Him. So what He does, He disperses them over the face of the earth and He turns them over to these other gods to serve and worship. He gives 70 nations over to the 70 gods and said, good, you don't want to worship Me, you go do that. This is a very significant text, which we learn more about in Deuteronomy 32.8. This is talking about what just happened. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, in other words, He says, I'm done with you. you, these other gods will take care of you. When He separated the sons of man, that's Adam, He set the boundaries of the people according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. Now, the English translations that are based on the traditional Hebrew text of the Tanakh, it, they read here, sons of Israel, as the New American does here. But, there's a variant reading of this passage, and it's based on the 3rd century BCE translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into the Greek, which is the Septuagint, as well as the Hebrew manuscripts of Deuteronomy that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. I'm sure you all have heard of that. You heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You heard of Qumran. When they discovered Qumran, we learned a lot of things because we found texts. And so that's why a lot of the more modern translations are more accurate because they actually have more information than the other ones. You see, the ESV translates it, sons of God. So you see the difference there? Sons of Israel, sons of God. That's a huge difference. You get that? All right, let me read you the same passage as it was rendered by Sir Lancelot 
Brenton in his 1851 translation of the Septuagint into English. He says, when the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. Okay, so he sees it as angels. So we have sons of Israel, we have sons of God, and angels of God. Now, I guess you probably figured out the last two are saying the same thing, right? Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek phrase, angelon theo, is translated angels of God. This interpretive phrase is found in nearly all the extant Septuagint manuscripts. However, several earlier manuscripts have instead, weon theo, or Sons of God. Now, this is a literal rendering of the Hebrew phrase, B'nai Elohim, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls copies of Deuteronomy 32.8. The Septuagint translators plainly understood that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, spoke of in Deuteronomy 32.8 and elsewhere, were spirit beings. And they rendered it that way several times in order to clarify the meaning. Thus, the textual change from weon theon to angelon theon, they moved it. They said, okay, let's just say angels of God so people will get this, all right? Commenting on Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, John Walton writes this. These verses are intended to contrast the fact that the Lord has set Israel apart to, uh, unto himself from among the nations. That's important. That's what's happening here. And Israel is not numbered with them. Why was Israel not numbered with the nations in Genesis 10? They didn't exist. They didn't exist. You can't number them. They don't exist yet. We don't get to Israel until Genesis 12. All right? So he says, among them, they weren't numbered among the nations. He says, Israel is not numbered with them. The nations have their own gods who are mortal, but they do not have Yahweh, who alone does not die and is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Well, in Genesis 10, which is called the Table of Nations, Yahweh divides Noah's descendants into 70 different nations. All right? That's recorded in Genesis 10. Now, let me say something here to try to clear this up. 70 is a symbolic number. All right? There were more than 70 nations. There are 70 nations listed, but they are, okay, this is speaking of the totality of nations. 70 nations, 70 gods. There were more nations, there were more gods than 70, but this is symbolically so you can connect these numbers together and see they're talking about the same thing. We see this recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to genealogies, in their nations, and from these... The nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So Genesis 10 is the backdrop for Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 32.8 that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations, the goyim. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew word, root word, parad, which means separate, are used in both Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8. Now, that would alert us that, okay, something's going on here. The idea that the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the angelic sons of God is supported in the ancient book of Jasser. Now, you say, what in the world's Jasser? Well, Jasser is mentioned in Joshua 10.13. It says, 
Is it not written in the book of Jasser? It's also mentioned in 2 Samuel 1.18. Is it not written in the book of Jasser? Well, here's what Jasser says. And they built the tower and the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels, there we have 70s, we're at the tower, talking about the 70, who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongue, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. So, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed refreshing or referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation at the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel is not listed in the 70 nations found in Genesis, because they don't exist. At that time, the nation Israel hasn't been created. Therefore, the statement that God set the boundaries of the nations according to the number of children of Israel clearly is out of context. It just makes no sense. At that time, there is none. Now, literary and conceptual parallels discovered in the literature of Ugarit. Now, Ugarit was Israel's closest neighbor. Language is very similar. So when they discovered Ugarit and they discovered a lot of the writings there, they learned more about the Bible again. The more we discover, the more we learn. Now, the literature we found there have provided more coherent explanation of the number 70 found in Deuteronomy 32.8. And they furnished powerful ammunition to the textual scholars who argued against that, the reading of the sons of Israel. Ugaritic mythology plainly states that the head of the pantheon is El. Okay, you familiar? El, that's what they call God, El who, like the God of the Bible, is also referred to El Elyon, the Most High. So the God, the head God in Ugarit was El Elyon, same as Israel, except their gods were kind of weak. The head God was a little bit weak. He wasn't like our God. All right. But the head God in Ugarit, he fathered 70 sons, therefore setting the number of the sons of El, sons of God, and there's an unmistakable linguistic parallel with the Hebrew text underlying the Septuagint. Reading was thus discovered, one which prompted many scholars to accept the Septuagint reading on logical and philological grounds. God, El Elyon, divided the earth according to the number of heavenly beings who already existed from the time of creation. So there's this connection with these 70 gods and the nations. Now what happens at Babel? is man's disobedience causes Yahweh to just, I've had enough with man, he divides them up, and he gives them over to the lesser gods. They were to worship the lesser gods because Yahweh was done with them. So man continues to reject Yahweh and serve other gods, so Yahweh just gave them up. Because of Israel's sin, they end up worshiping in the wilderness for 40 years. And the wilderness was the territory of other gods. And that's what I think that many of us don't understand. But there's, the wilderness is a place of darkness. Um, it was Other gods dwelt there. To the Israelites, the desert would not only be a place forbidding to life, but it's ground outside the camp of Israel. In other words, you have God's camp. When you're camping in the camp, you're with God. When you go away from that camp, you're out in the desert. You're in the wilderness. What happened to Christ? 
He went into the wilderness, and who did he run into in the wilderness? Satan, because the, again, the wilderness is a place of demons. It's a place of demonic thing. That's the picture there. All right. And so the, the wilderness to Israel will have a clear idea of chaos. This is chaos. This is demonic. Leviticus 17.7, I think, suggests that Israel had saw the desert as spiritually sinister. It says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons. Now, goat demons are connected with the wilderness. Azazel, on the Day of Atonement, you're familiar with that. They send the goat out into the wilderness with the sins of Israel on it. In the wilderness was spiritual warfare. So, while they're going through the wilderness, God is constantly protecting them from these other gods. And in the wilderness, they had to trust Yahweh to provide for them in the worst possible situation. So Sukkot is about the deliverance from this situation. They're trusting God to provide for them. So Sukkot is a celebration of deliverance from the spiritual forces that want death and destruction and chaos for Israel. It pictures the rest of the promised land. See, they got through the desert, they got to the promised land, they're at rest now. They're in God's land. They're in God's territory. Zechariah prophesies this deliverance, and he ties their deliverance to the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14. This is apocalyptic literature, people. Okay, you've got to get that to start with. This is not didactic. This is apocalyptic, so we have to understand apocalyptic literature. He says, Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Alright, that should ring a bell for us, right? We know when that happened. He's prophesying. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile. The rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. People, this was fulfilled. In AD 70, when the Roman legions and their auxiliaries... Listen, it wasn't just the Romans. There was ethnic groups, all kinds of different ethnic groups involved that came against Jerusalem in AD 70. All right, so here, the temple, the city is being destroyed. He's talking about that. Let's drop down to verse 16. He says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. That's interesting. He says the nations are going to be keeping the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Okay, now you've got to not be thinking in a strictly literalistic sense. Oh, with no rain, what is rain picture? Rain is the blessing of God because through rain you get all your crops, you get everything else. So they're not going to get rain. All right? The nations who worship God at the Feast of Booths, this is after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, all right, remember, this is the context. First couple of verses connects it with Jerusalem. What did Yeshua say would happen when Jerusalem was destroyed? Remember in Matthew 5, he talked about heaven and earth passing away, right? And he connected the law of Israel, the Torah, with heaven and earth. All right, now, if you see heaven and earth as literal, then you're going to lose it here. You're not going to track, okay? Because Yeshua said this, as long as the law existed, 
heaven and earth would exist. All right, Matthew 5.18. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the phrase here, until heaven and earth pass away, refers to the duration of the whole Tanakh's authority. So Yeshua is saying, not a single item in the law, the Tanakh, will ever be changed until heaven and earth pass away. Is that what he said? So, if heaven and earth has not passed away, now listen, most of the church today would say heaven and earth refers to a literal heaven and earth, and it hasn't passed away, then the law is still intact. Yeshua said it was. Alright? All hundred and all 613 commandments. They're still good. They're still in effect. Every bit of it. So let me ask you this. Are all 613 laws still being obeyed by Israel today? Can you think of maybe one that's not? Huh? Okay, how about the Feast of Booths? How about any of the feasts? How about they're not sacrificed? Did God command them? We just read in the Feast of Booths, you got to offer up all these sacrifices. They're not doing it. So what happened? When did Israel stop obeying the 613 laws? When did they stop? A.D. 70. Okay, just some coincidence that Yeshua said when heaven will pass away, the law will pass away. And then Jerusalem is destroyed, which you've got to connect with heaven and earth. And all of a sudden, no more sacrifices. Listen, people, since... AD 70, Israel has not sacrificed an animal. To this day, they still celebrate the feast. How? They reinvented them. They just switched things around. We'll do it this way now. In other words, it's got nothing to do with God anymore. You got to see the connection here. Temple's destroyed, no more sacrifices. It ends. When, when the temple was destroyed, it became impossible to follow the law of Moses. Therefore, the destruction of the temple was the ultimate sign of the fulfillment and subsequent passing away of the law. And again, if we take heaven and earth in a literal sense, then the law will still be in effect today. But it's not. So, did Yeshua make a mistake or are we making a mistake? Because either Yeshua is wrong or heaven and earth is not to be taken in a literal sense. You got one of those two choices here, all right? Well, following the AD to 70 destruction of the temple, the observance of this feast, as well as all feasts, was radically altered. Now, look what Ezra says in 3.4. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. Uh, what's that mean? Oh, they did it like God told them to do it. Watch. And they offered the daily burnt offerings. That's the only way you can keep the feast as it's written to offer the sacrifices. Without a temple... Without the sacrificial system, these feasts can't be observed, which makes it clear that they all ended. When did the feasts end? Jerusalem's destruction. When heaven and earth pass away. When the law was done. There's no more rehearsals, people. The rehearsals ended because the antitype arrived. The prophecies that they're rehearsing have been fulfilled. So you're no longer waiting for something to show up because you already have it. I think I've told you the story before. We got type and anti-type. Well, when I was at sea, Kathy would send me pictures. 
And I'd put them on the ceiling of my bunk, and I'd lay there every night and stare at those pictures and thinking, oh, my word. You know, and I finally got home, and she came on the ship, and I hugged her, and it had been months since I hugged a human being, and it just felt so good. And once I got home, I didn't stare at those pictures anymore. Why? I had the reality. I, I went, I got the anti-type of those pictures. I had the true, the real. I didn't need the pictures anymore. So as modern day Israel goes through the motions of the rehearsals of these feasts, they've missed the reality by 2,000 years. They no longer sacrifice on Sukkot. No more goats. No more lambs. No more rams. No more 70 bulls are sacrificed as prescribed by Torah. And because there's no more temple and no more priesthood, it was all fulfilled in 8070. When Yeshua returned in judgment on Jerusalem, resurrected His saints, and indwelt His church. That's why I said these feasts, when you understand them, they give the preterist view of eschatology deep roots. Look at Zechariah 14.18. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them shall be no rain. Here we go again, no rain. There shall be the plague with which the the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Now again, people, the Feast of Booths pictures deliverance. All believers have been delivered. And so that's what he's saying here. Listen, if they're not believers, they don't get the rain. They're under a plague. But if you celebrate the Feast of Booths, we celebrate it in its fulfillment in Yeshua. He fulfilled that feast. He is the anti-type of the feast. Now let's talk for a minute about the anti-type. What did Yahweh do after He dispersed the nations and put them under the authority of other gods? He said, I'm done with all you people. I'm sick of all you. None of you will listen. I'm done. Chapter 11. What do you do in chapter 12? Huh? He started something else. He said, I want a people. I'm going to go get me some. So in Genesis 12, 1 and 3, it says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay, Abraham is going to turn him into a great nation. Then he says this, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we know from Galatians how this happened. All right? Yahweh had just disinherited the nations, and as soon as he does, he calls Abram, and he says, I'm going to use you to bless those nations that I just put under the other gods I just cursed. Wow, that's, I mean, the very next chapter, he doesn't even wait. He gets rid of them and says, i got to work on getting them back. All right? Right away. And it's through Israel, Yeshua, because Yeshua is the true Israel. He fulfilled all that Israel failed to do. You know, Israel in the wilderness messed up over and over. Yeshua in the wilderness didn't mess up at all, right? There were Israel to be a light to the nations, but the Israelites didn't get it. They had grown to hate the people around them. They were so pro-Israel, they had nothing but disdain for anybody else. So they weren't a light to the nations at all. And then as we come to the New Testament, we see at Pentecost that Yahweh begins to reclaim the nations for Himself. Remember, Pentecost is a fulfillment. In the Old Covenant type, on Pentecost, on that day, Israel received the law on Mount Sinai. 
On the new covenant Pentecost, the church received the new covenant and the Gentiles were being brought in, called in. So Yahweh, in other words, had not forever abandoned the nations. He calls them as soon as, you know, we get to chapter 12, uh, Genesis, and then you see the calling. Now look at Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, if you're paying attention, you see the number 72, and you say, wait, 72? I thought it was 70. Well, if you have the New American Standard, it's 70. If you have the ESV, it's 72. Why the difference? Well, if you go to Genesis 10, if you count the nations, you get 70, if you use the Masoretic text. If you use the Septuagint, you get 72. (laughs) So it depends on which text of the New Testament translators use, the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. But the significance here is the numbers correspond. All right, They have 72 nations. Here we got 72 people going out to the nations to reach them. So what's the significance of the 70 or the 72? Well, since Luke viewed the gospel as God's plan for reaching the nations that he had disinherited at Babel, the number of disciples in Luke 10.1 was meant to match the number of nations to just reinforce this symbolism. You see how much we miss from the Scriptures when we just read over and don't connect the dots? Yeshua's inauguration of the kingdom meant that these 70 disinherited nations are being reclaimed. He's sending out the disciples, 70 of them. This is the theological messaging. Look at Luke 10, 17 and 19. The 72 returned with joy. They're joyful, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. In conjunction with the successful mission of the 70, Yeshua declares the expulsion of Satan from God's presence. So Satan is being defeated. The nations are being made part of the kingdom of God. So the fullness of the feast is in the seventh month. And we experience at that the coming of Christ in the destruction of Jerusalem. This was a time of great joy for believers. The Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate and commemorate the end of the wanderings in the desert for the children of Israel. But you have to understand the church was also in the desert for 40 years. As Ephesians 6.12 said, they were in a spiritual battle. They were battling these false gods. All right. Secondly, it also was a celebration of the inheritance and of their entry into the Canaan, the promised land. Charity, put me back to full slide again. One more time. I'll wait. Okay, again, Passover, type and anti-type. Israel leaves Egypt. 1,600 years later, Christ is crucified the same day, the same time. Unleavened bread, the next day, deliverance. Then the first fruits, that's the resurrection of Christ. And then you have Pentecost, 50 days later. Again, laws given to Pentecost on Mount Sinai, laws given to the church. The same thing. All right, these four feasts were fulfilled on the exact dates as the types. From, okay, then from Pentecost to trumpets, there's a 40 year exodus. Then during the fall feast, Jerusalem was destroyed at the Feast of Trumpets. Just like they got in the land, they sounded the trumpets and Jericho fell. 
Now we're in the new covenant land. They sound the trumpets and Jerusalem falls. The city fell in judgment. And then we have the day of atonement. If you examine the Scriptures concerning the second coming of Christ, you're going to find it uses a lot of day of atonement language. Because the second coming of Christ is connected with the day of atonement. And then, after atonement, man can enter into Yahweh's presence in the Feast of Booths. Booths is the fullness of salvation. Booths is when the church reached its final rest, just like Israel reached its rest. The one speaks of the first coming. The second feast, the second set, the fall feast speak of the second coming of Christ. And people, you cannot separate these by thousands of years. It was a 40-year type. It's a 40-year anti-type. The church reached its rest. Now, Think with me about this, because this is, I think, should cause you to think when you look at the feast. The sacrifice was made at Passover, right? Atonement was not complete for 40 years later. You say, and so many, so many Christians say, well, it was all finished at the cross. Uh, no, really, not at all. Sacrifice was made. But why is the day atonement at the very end of the feast? You think it should be right there with Passover, right? No, but because it wasn't until they were in the land that it was completed. It wasn't until the Lord returned that salvation was completed. And that's why the Scriptures say, and in the age to come, you'll have eternal life. Not till you get in the land. The Passover deliverance was not consummated until they entered the promised land. It began with the sacrificing of the lamb introduced in Exodus 12. While Israel was still in bondage, they ate the first Passover while they were still in Egyptian bondage. And then in Joshua, 40 years later, they entered the land. Look what Joshua 5.9 says. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Today. Throughout the history of Israel, the Passover recalled not only the sparing of the houses marked with the blood of the Passover lamb, but also Israel's subsequent deliverance out of Egyptian slavery. A deliverance, this is important, that was consummated 40 years later in the crossing of the Jordan River. So he says, today I've rolled away. This is 40 years later. At the end of the 40, it's rolled away. See, once their redemption was consummated by their being in the promised land, only then were they truly redeemed from Egyptian bondage. This is true of the second Exodus generation. Their redemption was not consummated until the Lord returned for His bride. Because on the Day of Atonement, the priest could be in Yahweh's presence. The only time anybody went into the presence of Yahweh, once a year, the Day of Atonement, the priest went in there. And he better be careful. Okay? Because he messed up, God killed him. Alright? And the Scripture tells us they had bells on their clothes. Alright? So you can hear, jingle, jingle, they're going on, they're still alive in there. Now, it's not in the Scripture, but the tradition said they would tie a rope around his ankle when he went in. In case God killed him in there, because do you want to go in there to get him out? No, you're not allowed in there. So they would just yank on the rope and pull out the dead body. There's no 
We don't know that they ever did that, but they understood that you don't mess around in there. But here he is on the Day of Atonement, and he's in there meeting with God. Another term for the Day of Atonement is face-to-face. Face-to-face. And face-to-face is an idiom for the Day of Atonement because they're in there, they're in the presence of Yahweh. Now, the anti-typical fulfillment of these feasts came at the end of the 40-year transition period from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70 when the Old Covenant came to an end and the New Covenant was fully consummated. And the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth arrived where we, the Bible says, tabernacle with God. So Booth speaks of the final harvest as well as the final rest. Remember, this was a seven-day feast with the Sabbath on the eighth day. Why was the Sabbath at the end of the feast? Because the Sabbath pictures rest. Yeshua is our Sabbath rest. That's why the Sabbath is the only of the Ten Commandments not brought into the new, because Yeshua is our Sabbath rest. We rest in Him. He fulfilled the old covenant type. We as believers rest totally and completely in His work on our behalf. Now I said earlier in this message that the Feast of Booths is also known in Scripture as the Feast of Ingathering. For it was observed after all the crops had been harvested. Look what Matthew 24.31 says. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The harvest is the day of ingathering when God gathers His people unto Himself and He burns up the wicked. The righteous among the Gentiles were gathered with the Israelites to come into Yahweh's presence. Yahweh not only gathered His people, but He began to tabernacle with them. We see many many scriptures throughout the New Testament talk about the building of the temple. You know, the we are living stones, Ephesians 2, being built up for a habitation of God. God hadn't moved in yet. The church was being built. But look at Revelation 21, 1-3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, All right, back up here. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. That's not talking about literal heaven and literal earth. It's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is called by Josephus the heaven and earth. Okay? That's how the Jews viewed the temple and their ground. All right? It goes on to say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You know, Revelation, we're at the end here, chapter 21, and now they're celebrating. Guess what? God's dwelling with us. Don't most people understand this today, that God dwells with us? They do, but they don't because they don't, they're looking forward to this time. Oh, I can't wait till you know, the new heavens and earth when God will dwell with us. He's here right now. There's no more temple. There's no more veil. We're with God. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. The age in which we now live, believers, is the new covenant age. It is the new Jerusalem. We live in the presence of Yahweh. We have access to the throne of God 24-7. We don't take a sacrifice like the Israelites did. The Israelites went to the temple to worship. They took something to say, God, you know, is it okay if I come into your presence and fellowship for a little while? We're with Him. The sacrifice of Christ has brought us near. And the saved of the nations, we walk in the light of the holy city. In this 
new heavens and new earth, the gospel message is going out. Now, this is important because if you're a dispensationalist, you believe that you know this portion of Scripture in Revelation 21 22 is talking about the eternal state. God burns up the earth. Everything's gone. We've got a new, whole new environment. We're living in heaven or dwelling on the earth, however you want to look at it. But this is it. But look what the 22.17 says. The spirit and the bride, the bride's the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now the water is a picture of the spirit and a picture of salvation. This is a call to salvation. Now, if the new heavens and earth are the eternal state, as dispensationalism teaches, why is an invitation to salvation going out? And why in these passages in Revelation 21-22 says outside the city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers? What's outside the city? The city is the church. Outside the church are the evil people that have always been out there. And from the church goes the water of life that serves to heal the nations. So the gospel is still going out, people. And it's our responsibility to carry it. We live in the new heavens and the new earth. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the body of Christ. Yeshua and His Father are among us. And we don't need a temple. Why? We are the temple. We Listen, people. You are sacred space. You our holy ground. God dwells in you. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, your body is a temple. You are the temple of the living God because He dwells in you. They used to have to go to sacred space. We are sacred space. Wherever we are, God is there with us. We are in God's presence, people, now and forevermore. You know, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years under attack of lesser gods. Then Yahweh delivered them into the promised land, And the New Testament church also had a 40-year wilderness experience with spiritual battle. And the Feast of Booths pictures our deliverance and our dwelling with Yahweh in the eternal realm. The wilderness ended. We moved into the house of the Father. So the celebration of the Feast of Booths is tied to the dedication of Solomon's temple. We looked at that earlier. And it's also tied to the covenant renewal ceremony of Ezra 3 and Nehemiah 8. And what you see in all three of these cases is a new beginning for the people of God is signaled. And that's what the Feast of Booth signals. It's a new beginning. We're no longer in the wilderness. We are with God. We are dwelling with Him. So this text, these 70 bulls, depicted the 70 nations and the 70 gods. The Feast of Booths, now let me just wrap up with this here, because we talked a couple weeks ago in our series on John about warnings of false teachers, and one of the false teachings I brought up was called Israel Only. Remember that? Well, I think if you understand the Feast of Booths, it destroys the Israel-only doctrine. Okay? Those who hold this false teaching say the term Gentiles refers only to the ten northern tribes of Israel, and thus the Bible is written solely and entirely to the nation Israel. Therefore, there's nothing in the Bible for us. That's their teaching. But we see from the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of the Nations, that Yahweh has always, always had a plan for the Gentiles. Like I said, I, you can't, you got to see the contrast. In Genesis 11, God's dispersing the nations, the Tower of Babel. The next chapter, I mean, a couple of verses later, you'll be a blessing to those nations I just dispersed. I want them back. I'm going to get them back. But we got to go through something first, all right? 
So I think we see from the Feast of Booths, again, the Feast of Nations, Yahweh has a plan for the Gentiles. Always has a plan. And the 70 bulls sacrificed during Booths, I think, were there to remind Israel. They would go back. God dispersed the 70 nations and He chose us. But we're sacrificing 70 bulls because God's reminding us we have a calling to those nations. We're to be a light to them. God wants us to share with them what we have. Yahweh, the eternal God. People, Yahweh loves Gentiles and He saves them. Amen? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for, again, the opportunity to be able to look at Your Word. Lord, what a blessing it is. There's so much in there, Father. We could spend the rest of our lives digging and digging and not begin to uncover so much that's there. Thank You, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us the heart of Bereans that we would search the Scriptures, Lord, to see if these things are so. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen.